When I last talked to Charlie Meyerson 10 years ago, he was working in radio. Now he runs his own digital media and podcast. This is from a live stream that we did. What are some, um, gosh, okay, well, first of all, I talked to you 10 years ago, I think. Yes. I and, mean, and we knew one another before that, of course, too. But yes, uh, about 10 years ago, you and I met at, at, at the City Hall um, in, the, in the City Council Chambers, and, and you asked me a bunch of questions. Yeah. And so since then, my gosh, you've done so much. I mean, 10 years have passed, and you've done a lot of stuff. And I remember, well, where were you working back then when I last interviewed you? Uh, 10 years ago, I was at FM News Chicago, short-lived, but I found a tremendously fulfilling uh, experience experiment in bringing all news radio to the FM dial, which of course, WBBM shortly thereafter uh, did as well for CBS's all news radio station. And then what were you doing there? Uh, my title was Chicago Bureau Chief, which was a highfalutin way of uh, saying I pretty much got to do whatever I wanted, but mostly uh, covering City Hall and Rahm Emanuel. And it was it was a tremendous fun and very rewarding. And, you know, that that relatively small news team uh, won some great honors uh, during the time that I was there. And uh, um, and I made uh, friends for life, uh, professional and personal and otherwise. Ooh, you mean F at FM News or at, at FM Hall? News? At FM News, City Hall, I, re I renewed some older acquaintances, but uh, FM News, I met people I had not known before, and uh, and whom I was happy to uh, to continue to to uh, to work with in in what followed in the uh, you know the year the years the decade that has followed since. Yeah. So, what was it about FM News? Because other people have said a similar thing that people people made good friends. Or what was it about that that made people so close? You know, it was this sensation of uh, building the airplane while it was in flight, um, building a radio station <laughs> as it was on the air. And uh, we tried a lot of things in the course of that year. My, my job remained relatively unchanged, but, you know, the, the format around me and around the station changed a lot. Um, but it was, um, I mean, people who lived through that year and live to tell of it uh, are people who demonstrated that they have the flexibility to deal with uh, the startup world that uh, in many ways a lot of us have lived in since that time at FM News, uh, you know, 2011 to 2012. Uh, so um, as you know, because you were one of them, uh, when, uh, in 2013, we were starting up rivet, the sort of, uh, another attempt to reinvent radio news for the, for the smartphone this time. Uh, I was, uh, lucky that a lot of the people who had worked at FM news were, uh, not presently employed and they were available to come uh, join us in that same kind of, Hey, let's try this and see if it works experiment. Yeah. So what was Rivet? I mean, it still exists, of course, right? It still exists. Uh, it is an app you can download for iPhone and Android. And and the concept, uh, one that I am still very much in love with, was sort of on-demand news radio. One riveting story after another. If you like what you're listening to, great. If you really like it, you can swipe right and hear it again. And if you don't like it, you swipe left and you're on to the next story. Uh, a friend of mine uh, referred to it as Tinder for radio news. Uh, uh, we thought of it as Pandora for radio news back in the day. But And the app still exists, and I am still very much in love with the concept, as many of us are. But uh, the business model did not work out, and Rivet uh, has morphed into, we now call it Rivet 360, 
it is uh, refocused on podcast production, but still uh, creating a, a steady stream of news audio for use in other apps. You can ask uh, Google Assistant, for instance, to play uh, the latest uh, Rivet uh, news from Rivet and and hear uh, a newscast or two. Um, but uh, Rivet is now producing podcasts for uh, a number of nonprofit organizations and professional organizations, include and, and some professional organizations, including Deloitte, the big consulting firm. And uh, you know that's that's how the organization uh, is uh, making some of its revenue now, as we kind of wait for the rest of the world to catch up with. Uh, you know what we set out to do in 2013 that was an incredible idea okay so yes the rest of the world woke up. because remember the early days of podcasting yes not many people did it so and it yes. was sort of hard to figure out so and now look at everybody's got one yep and uh i'm i'm uh, i'm always happy to brag that uh that i along with other members of the rivet team hold a patent for uh contextual location-based delivery of audio content um the phone knows where you are so we can give you a traffic report that is relevant to where you are with none of the stuff you don't need um we're not doing it now but we demonstrated it could be done back then and uh that's a service that uh awaits people when and if i hope someday we get back to the app no i think it will happen i mean because you know sometimes the technology has to catch up with people's habits and if you think about other technology that's been developed or other delivery systems they were considered sort of outliers and now they're mainstream. I mean, yeah, and a number of uh, a rivet predated um, another number of apps that have become, you know, more successful, partly on the basis of their, their popularity, uh, you know, their, their audience before they launched their app NPR Odyssey, your uh, colleagues at uh, what used to be known as CBS radio. Oh, um, Intercom, yeah. Intercom. Um, I mean, well, it was Odyssey used to be Entercom, and then before that, CBS. Yeah, um, and okay. Infinity at some point, I think. Uh, I've, I've, I need a map, but um, yeah, exactly. a number of organizations still don't get it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on my friends at National Public Radio. Uh, when I hear one of their newscasts on my Google Nest Hub, for instance, uh, if I ask for the latest news from NPR, the first words I hear are "live from NPR." It's not. Oh, sorry, <laughs> yeah. It's on demand. And, and that sort of um, adapting radio philosophy and, and mindset for the on-demand age is something that hasn't quite taken hold uh, among traditional broadcasters. Hmm. So there's still some learning to be had there, I think. Yeah, so you've been in radio or you've been in news for many years. And my gosh, I mean, where do I begin? Because we did, we go, did go into detail about your earlier career before, but now that you've seen so many stages of it, I mean, what's your assessment? Or what, what do you think about everything you've done and what's happened in the business? You know, it's been a great career. Uh, it's not over yet. I'm not, I'm not hanging it up, but um, it, it has been a wonderful career. You know, there is, and I think you know this, there is nothing like live radio. Um, there is nothing like talking into a microphone or playing a song and knowing that you have, theoretically at least, you know, thousands of people listening to you. Yeah. And yet it is not the way generations now are consuming audio am and fm you know as as sentimentally attached as i am and as many people are to it it is not the way you know teenagers and young adults consume audio you know the first thing many of them do when they get in the car is if their car doesn't already have you know smartphone like technology is they connect their phone to the radio 
or the audio in their car. And, um, you know, the latest numbers I've seen suggest that, you know, radio's audience among those generations is dwindling and, and, and fairly quickly. So, uh, but that doesn't mean the end of the ability to communicate with lots and lots of people. It's just different now. And, and of course, live streams still can happen as is happening for us now, right? People are theoretically watching us on, uh, on zoom. Are they, are people watching us? Well, yeah, on zoom? Well, on zoom, no, they're watching. Well, if they're watching us on, um, these are five places, Twitch, my Facebook okay. page, my personal Facebook page, the radio girl, Facebook page and Twitter. All right. So and people are watching too. us not on Zoom, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're um, communicating via Zoom. We're using Zoom as a vehicle. Good. See, you're so technologically advanced, Margaret. <laughs> You've always been on the cutting edge. So, um, you know, it's it, it's been a wonderful career. And, and you know, as I think I've said to you before, and I said to you a decade ago, I think this is a great time to get in the communications business, whether it's radio, audio, video, text, um, journalism, straight ahead news because there are so many more ways to reach an audience. You don't have to, as I've said for decades now, suck up to the owner of uh, an FCC license or the owner of a printing press. You know, one person, uh, in my case, sitting at a desk in the attic can communicate with thousands of people daily, uh, you know, as I do with my daily email news briefing, which I think of as a newscast, but it's text, uh, Chicago Public Square. You know, what I'm doing with that is is demonstrating the, you know, the, the power of one person to build an audience of his, her, or their own and communicate with that audience however you want, whether it's a series of podcasts, which I have at Chicago Public Square, or whether it's a daily email news briefing, or whether it's cartoons or photographs or podcasts or whatever. Okay, so can you explain what you are doing that current project? Uh, well, let me back up and say I'm still uh, Vice President of Editorial and Development at Rivet, uh, which is a fancy title that means uh, I am the uh, haranguer in chief. And I, you know, I'm I'm of counsel and uh, let people know when I think things can sound better or make connections that help the business grow. Chicago Public Square, which I started in 2017, is a daily email news briefing, very much like what I did at the Chicago Tribune for 11 years. Um, you know, I joined the Tribune when they were just getting ready to start using email to communicate with people, which I have to say is something that we did. I guess I mentioned this 10 years ago. I did at WNUA um, in the 90s. We had an AOL account and we offered to email listeners the full text of wire service stories that we'd uh, contracted to 20 seconds on the radio. But I did that for 10 years at the Tribune, launched their email news program. And um, the idea that here's here's what's happening in an email news briefing that comes to you once a day, but could theoretically come to you two or three times a day or once an hour. If, you know, a news organization wanted the analog to the hourly newscast, they could send out an hourly email. Um, I do it every day, 10 o'clock, chicagopublicsquare.com. It's free. Um, it's as much as anything. Uh, first of all, it's compulsive behavior on my part. I mean, you know, that's been my career is uh, looking around the world, whether it's once an hour on the radio or once a day uh, in the digital world and saying, what do people need to know? Here's... Here's what you need to know. In email, it's a series of links. But, um, you know, the idea is here's what we, what we, what I think you should know at 10 o'clock on uh, weekday mornings. Um, and the joy of what I do with my compulsive behavior is 
I can point to anyone anywhere who's doing anything interesting, anything relevant to, to Chicago, not necessarily in Chicago, although certainly that's most of it. But, you know, as any good newscast would do, national and international news that is relevant or would resonate with Chicago audiences. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a roundup of news that is relevant to or interesting for or significant to people in Chicago. And I'm doing it to demonstrate that anybody could do this with any subject matter. You know, whether it's nuclear physics or ultimate Frisbee, um, you can use Google News, for instance, one of the tools that I use to send you email news alerts when that subject is in the news. And then you can put it in context along with other similar items or items about the similar subject matter. In my case, it's News Oven for Chicago. And I do it for free um, in the tradition of public broadcasting, which I think is a, an excellent model for people to follow in the digital age. I do it for free and say, this is free to everybody, but if you like it, subtext, if you don't want me to quit, uh, kick in a few bucks and, uh, you know, I'll keep doing it. And, uh, it's a model that's worked pretty well. Well, how do they donate? Oh, it's very easy. You just click on a link and say, I would, I would like to make a monthly pledge of whatever amount they want or a yearly pledge of whatever amount they want or a one-time tip of whatever amount they want. And, you know, I'm not shy about saying it could be a buck. I'm happy to take a buck if that's, uh, you know, if the, what's this worth to you to get it every weekday at 10 o'clock? Do you find it useful? And, uh, you know, the, the, um, the support level has been, uh, by all measures, I've seen impressive. Should I brag? Yeah, I'd like to know because it's, right. it's very hard to make money from online pursuits. It, it It is easier if you have a bigger audience, but this is just between us, Margaret. Don't tell anyone else. You know, about 15% of the audience is kicking in an average of, you know, because they can pick any any amount they want, about six bucks, six bucks a month, which is enough to keep me from quitting. And uh, again, I think it's an excellent model. I, I despise paywalls. I think they are counterproductive for any organization, whether you're a big one like my former colleagues at the Tribune or the Sun-Times or, you know, a little one like me. I, I think you that job number one, as I've said in many contexts, is build audience. And paywalls are counterproductive to that. Yeah, but then how do they pay all those people there? Because they are already an established, like, so for instance, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, they're already an established uh, institution. And then all of a sudden the internet came and they lost all that advertising revenue. So how are they supposed to make money? Well, first of all, they're still making money. They're making quite a bit of money from the the, the, the print organization, which really? is why, you know, hedge funds buy newspapers. Yes, because old people will pay whatever it takes to keep getting the newspaper in many Wait, cases. Are you serious? Because the impression I get is they're not making good money and that's why they have these layoffs and bad pay, et cetera. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not privy to the books, but, you know, the way they're making money and I'm an outsider looking in now is, you know, they have laid off or bought off their very expensive senior staff members. They're staffed with younger, many younger, not quite so well-paid employees. I mean, the hedge funds wouldn't be buying this if they didn't think there was money to be made. What they're doing in the Tribune, and this is not my reporting, I believe it was the Atlantic referred to the hedge fund that bought the Tribune as vampiric. Um, in that they bought it, they suck all the money out of it. They sell off the real estate, which is what they've done. There may be a casino where, you know, the Tribune printing presses once were and, you know, and they, they suck it dry. And eventually, you know, if things don't improve, they, they walk away when they're not making money. Uh, I'm not saying that any of that is something that these organizations should walk away from, 
but they do have a website. They do have digital products. And to put it behind the paywall is to isolate themselves from a future in which they have a bigger audience that, that everyone wants a piece of. Um, the Tribune, when I was there, was the most visited news site in Chicago. I don't know if that's the case now. I kind of doubt it because, you know, anecdotally among my friends, uh, and many of whom used to work for the Tribune, uh, that paywall frustrates even paying subscribers. And so people go elsewhere. Block Club Chicago is open to the masses. They do a very good job with local news. And if I see a story in the Trib that I want to share with Chicago Public Square readers and I can find it on Block Club, I'll link to the Block Club story or one of the broadcast sites, but when WBBM you, you know, in some cases. Well, when you were in, um, when you were more active in journalism, you know, traditional. Okay, so you and these other people, I'm assuming, I don't know what your pay was, but um, it seems like people of your generation were paid well, they could pay their mortgage, they could live on the North Shore, et cetera. Oak Park and, in my case. Okay, but was that, okay, so the question, I guess the question is, those, were those people, were a lot of people being paid well, or was it just a few, or what was going I, on? I don't know. I, mean, I will tell you, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would be surprised here. I'm not making anything near what I was working when I was a news director at WGN, which was, you know, a couple of years, uh, 2009 to 2011. I, I don't think there's any question there's probably less money for working journalists now. But on the other hand, there is more money for independent journalists than there was before the internet because independent journalists can pocket all the money that their work generates however much that is um you know we're in a period like of transition Substack and so forth yeah substack is you know is is doing very much like what i'm doing i don't use substack but um you know the idea is and Substack takes a, a bit off the top, too, in, in from what I understand. But, you know, the opportunities for especially for people who are just starting out in the business to build their own brands, their own news brands. I'm not talking about personal brand. I, I don't really like that phrase as applied to individuals, but their own news organizations. Uh, I mean, the startup costs for Chicago Public Square were virtually zero. Mm -hmm. And I've written at length about that. Um, you get a blog, which is free. You get a free starter MailChimp account that distributes your blog for free. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if you're lucky, your subscription list grows and you wind up paying, you know, 10 bucks a month and maybe 25. And, you know, I'm at the point where I now pay MailChimp, I think, 72 bucks a month. Wow, but, that means you have a lot of subscribers. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, more than I started out with. Um, and MailChimp has raised its rates too. But, you know, it's enough that I, there's still money to be pocketed. How did you grow um, your how did you grow your audience? Well, you know, I have I had an advantage, not much of an advantage because I'm old, but you're you not know, old. A lot old of, is like 90. Okay, good. I'm not that old then. I'm not old then. But yeah, I had a lot of Facebook friends. I you know, when when I worked at the Tribune, um, you know, it, it wasn't exactly a mandate, but we were encouraged. Get on Facebook, get on Twitter. That's that's where the audience is. So um you know, from that and my, you know, 20 plus years in traditional radio news, I had, uh, you know, a, a lot of friends on Facebook and Twitter. And so when I said, hey, I'm doing this new thing, sign up for free, you know, in the course of um, a few months, I had, uh, you know, several hundred readers. I didn't ask for money uh, until after I'd done this for a year, by the way. So um, that was um, a luxury that I, I recognize not a lot of people have, but on the other hand, if people are in forced unemployment, then they do have that time to, you know, be
begin a project like this. Well, you're talking about growing your audience. Yeah. Well, you know, if you have a lot, I mean, I, when I talk to students, I, I tell them job number one, job zero, actually, before you start anything, is get a lot of friends, <laughs> digital friends, real life friends, people that you can, you know, encourage to, to, to see what you're doing. Um, and that's, you know, my first subscribers came because I announced on Facebook, I'm doing a thing. And then the, the, the other aspect to it is, you know, ask your friends to be your promoters. And in my case, you know, I'm lucky, but again, this is not a unique thing that, you know, some of my friends have big audiences of their own. Uh, Justin Kaufman, who was on WGN radio at the time, you know, I, I said, I'm going to do this thing. You want to talk about it? And he actually, I think he invited me on the show and I said, coincidentally, I'm getting ready to launch this thing. So I went on WGN and talked about it. And that brought in, you know, I think several dozen subscribers. One of the biggest boosts in circulation came when uh, Ben Jarofsky at The Reader wrote about a piece I had written explaining that someone had quit uh, subscribing to Chicago Public Square, that this person, and the quote was, too far left for me, I've unsubscribed. Well, do, what kind of sources? I mean, do you use different kinds of sources? Like I do. Uh, Tribune, Sun-Times, Washington Post, New York Times, um, Vox, uh, The Atlantic, um, sometimes Fox News, um, local television. I mean, anywhere that there is anything that's that's interesting. But do you go to Fox News and Washington Times and no, I don't go to the, the Washington Review Examiner. Or... No, I, I, I generally stay away from them unless they have something that in context makes sense. Um, you know, as a rule, I, I stay away from, except for citations that provide that context, um, I, I shy away from sources whose credibility is questionable. Okay. Yeah. How do you judge the credibility? How do you assess the credibility? You know, without a specific example, it's hard to say, but you know, over the course of time, if reports by a media organization have been discredited by credible reporters or people that I know personally or by reputation to be credible, then those sources become incredible. And of course, there are a number of uh, NewsGuard is uh, is one of the uh, the rating services that is um, staffed in part by uh, uh, former colleagues of yours and mine at uh, the Tribune and at Rivet and at FM News. And uh, it, it's a source, it's a plug-in for your browser that will tell you you're on a site that has a history of not being fair, uh, that does not verify its facts, that republishes lies uh, or untruths without uh, uh, context. Uh, PolitiFact, of course, is another well-known site that um, is pretty good at discrediting sources that don't deserve credit. You also mentioned USA Today has a really good fact check situation. So let's say there's a big story out there. You can go to USA Today and they'll they'll say, OK, this is what it says out there. This is what we've researched. This is the conclusion. But it, that's ironic because then recently somebody was busted there who made up a bunch of stories or a bunch of sources. And you know what I'm talking about? And yeah, even, I, and even I, on New, USA Today, if you go to the site, they even list like over 20 stories that the person lied. About. You know, I, I do. I do teach and lecture occasionally about. I don't like this phrase, fake news, because it's, it's an oxymoron. News is stuff that happened. If it's fake, it's not news. If it's news, it's not fake. But one of the things that I tell people to look for when they look to judge the credibility of a news source is, do they accept, do they run corrections? 
you know, at the bottom of Chicago Public Square on the web and in email, it says corrections, send it to us. I love getting corrections. Um, I have friends in the business who hate it. I I got someone today who told me I uh, I had the word made, M-A-D-E instead of M-A-T-E. And this reader was very apologetic, seems kind of small. And I wrote back as I write back to readers in general and say, I love getting corrections. I love knowing that I have readers who pay such attention to what I'm doing, which is a gift. And I love readers who think it's worth the time to let me know that I've done something wrong and give me a chance to fix it. I think that's a fundamental trait of, of good journalism and not enough websites do that. And I'm looking at you local television news websites mm. where it's almost impossible on many of them to find a place to say, send us corrections or contact oh, us. Point. Yeah. Broadcasting has historically not been good back in, back in my day on, on the radio at WXRT and WNUA, I was compulsive, probably to this may of some of my program directors about if I made a mistake or mispronounced the name or got a fact wrong in one newscast and someone was kind enough to let me know about it, I would uh, come on the next newscast and say, correcting something we said in our last newscast. Wow. The word, <laughs> oh, I remember one where I uh, talked about uh, the uh, departing Russian president's pregnancy. <laughs> that was his presidency. And uh, I learned early on in the radio that um, uh, the word uh, is pronounced uh, mausoleum, not mausoleum. Right. So lots of mistakes that have stuck with me over the years. And if I'm lucky, people call me in. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And based on what Charlie and I talked about in the live stream, I've decided to put a donation button on the podcast website. I pay for web hosting, equipment, live stream costs, Zoom, a music library, and a computer. And I would like to get a really nice Shure microphone sometime. Thanks. So are you were saying that it sort of, it sounds like it sort of fits your personality. So you would say you are sort of obsessive about information and so forth? Yes. I think I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm obsessive about getting things right and, and acknowledging mistakes. Have you, because I'm just wondering, you know, when you're, um, the fact that you started this because you wanted to look things up and I'm just thinking a lot, there are a lot of aggregating websites. So how did you know that this was needed around here? Well, it, it's the story I've told many times, but, um, I started in January, 2017. And um, a, a longtime friend, someone I'd known since she was in high school and I was working at WXRT, wrote to me and said, this is the beginning of the Trump administration. There is so much news happening everywhere. And, and I, I can't follow it. Do you know anyone who's kind of doing a decent roundup? And at the time, you know, I had stepped back from Rivet and had more time on my hands than I wanted. And I probably stroked my beard, but maybe not. And I said, oh, wait, I know someone who could do that. And, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, this is this idea of rounding up the news and making, I won't say snap decisions, but pretty quick decisions about what goes in the newscast this hour or what goes in the newscast or on the website front page today is something that I've spent my whole career doing. And, you know, again, in January, 2017, there was no shortage. And of course, almost every day since then, there's been no shortage of interesting for lack of a better word uh, news stories to choose from so it's it's almost impossible to make a bad choice in a news environment such as we've lived in for the last half decade or so and and the other the other thing that 
you know, I aimed to do and that I tried to do when I was at the Tribune, again, launching their email news service was uh, write it in a very conversational style, write it with some personality. Now, at the time, in the early 2000s, that was something that wasn't being done. Most email newsletters were algorithmically generated. They were just lists of headlines. Right. In the years since then, and I like to say I was one of the first, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's become more popular. The idea of a more conversational newsletter has become the standard. Axios, uh, Politico, um, and they all do a very good job of it. But um, locally, I mean, even in 2017, it was not being done well, I think, by a lot of local news organizations. Again, they've, they've all begun to catch up a little bit. Uh, none of them, I think, are quite as dense or as broad in scope as Chicago Public Square. And, and the other thing is many of them are, you know, for better or worse, beholden to their own newsroom. So, you know, that content gets most favored news, most favored nation status. Whereas, you know, I'm free. Who's got the best story today? Who's got the most interesting content? I'll, I can point to that without having fear that, you know, the publisher is going to come down and say, why didn't you spotlight our content? Yeah. Has anybody ever said that? Um, the publisher of Chicago Public Square is very kind and understanding uh, toward me and lets me do whatever <laughs> I want. No, I mean, I mean, um, have you ever had any news outlets say, hey, how come you didn't cover the story that we did about such and such? No, but you know what's cool? Um, well, every once in a while, someone will say, you know, um, yeah, we've done this. What's cool is um, a handful of news organizations, not as many as I like, will now come to me and say, we're going to publish this story tomorrow. Ooh. Can you put it in Chicago Public Square? Ooh, that's um, good. You and, know you made it when people do that. Not enough, but a few. Uh, you know, journalists whose, whose work I respect um, will give me a preview and say, you know, if this is interesting, could you put it in Chicago Public Square? And I'm, I'm always happy to hear from those people. The other thing that can happen, doesn't happen as much as I'd like, used to happen at the Tribune when I was doing email and back when the the internet team was kind of the back end of the news organization and regarded as such um, we learned that you know a couple of nice words whispered in the ear of a print staffer like hey we hear you know this story is doing very well on the internet if you were to write a column about it we think it would get a lot of traffic that sort of influence could, you know, early on was felt by the print staff at a time when many of the higher ups were not particularly interested in paying any attention to the internet. So now in Chicago Public Square um, mode, I do have the ability to drop a note to a friend or a colleague or someone who I know reads Chicago Public Square and say, you know, if you're planning to write about this, I would be happy to link to it. So in, in a way, in some small way, newsletter authors and digital creators can become kind of default assignment editors. That may be an overblown statement, but it's kind of cool when it happens. Now, why do you love news so much? You're very obsessed with it. Uh, short attention span. <laughs> um, and seriously, every day is something new. And and again, in this environment, especially, especially the notion of instant feedback uh, you know, when I when I send out Chicago Public Square at, at 10 o'clock, um, I'm a little disappointed if I don't hear back from, you know, at least a few readers in the first hour offering feedback or suggestions or, you know, heaven forbid, praise. Um, thanks for doing this. I really like it. Um, even better. Oh, and here's some money because I really like it. 
But the other thing is, and, and the, I think the thing that first drew me to, to journalism is um, when you're a reporter, and you know this, Margaret, you basically have a license to talk to anyone anywhere, or at least yeah, well, to I'm not a reporter, questions. but go ahead. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, you're, you're a journalist in a newsroom, and if you have a desire to get an answer about something, either you or one of your colleagues could call and ask the governor, the governor's office, the mayor, the mayor's office, the senator, the senator's office, the, the, the corporation CEO of, of any company in the world. We'd like to get an answer to this. Now, they may say no. They may shunt you off to you know, their public affairs office or whatever. But the idea that you have a license to ask a question of anybody anywhere is pretty cool. I was going to say, um, something just popped up on my computer. It was something from the Wall Street Journal. But how about the fact now they charge for their content? And I think they're doing pretty well. And Cranes charges for their content. So what do you think about? You know, if you have a big enough audience to begin with, and the Wall Street Journal is an order of magnitude, I think, more successful in that regard than these days, for instance, Chicago's local newspapers, partly because they have a national, international audience, a much potentially much bigger base. I think you can get away with it. Uh, I don't know that it's a great strategy in in the long run, but if you have a big enough audience and that audience satisfies your your needs, that's fine. If you're a smaller news organization, I don't think it serves you well because uh, again, there are generations coming up that are used to getting their news for free and there are advertisers if advertising revenue is part of your model that want to reach the biggest possible audience and a paywall limits your audience um you know i'm putting together chicago public square i will go out of my way to link to content that is not behind a paywall um and and so these organizations that have paywalls are in essence you know, pissing off whatever potential audience I might send their way. Um, and, you know, the Wall Street Journal, yes, has a seems to have a solid business model, also owned by Rupert Murdoch, which is problematic. But uh, it, when it reports an exclusive, that exclusive is very quickly picked up by other news organizations that don't have paywalls. Yeah, I was going to say that, um, okay, so you're mentioning, I don't even know the guy, obviously. I don't even know. I think I forgot what he looks like, but... You know, sometimes people say, okay, well, these people have this agenda and they're doing this kind of thing. But then I see the other side. And my personal opinion is that since Watergate, okay, so people saw these guys, you know, break this news story and then they became, you know, well known and so forth. So I think people coming up said, okay, what's my Watergate? I want to be become notable. And then it became some some journalism is sort of activist. Like you read the you read the article and you think, well, they only have one side here. And what do you think about that? Like sometimes I think that people go through go to journalism school or they go learn about journalistic principles, but then their articles celebrate a certain angle, which to me is more activism. It's more like columns. What's your question, Margaret? I mean, do you agree with me or what do you think about that? Um, you know, going back to, uh, there's a paper that I, I cite frequently um, on my Facebook page and social media, a paper that I wrote when I was in, in college, um, which was, this was 1976, so Watergate was still pretty fresh. And I, I made the point then that objectivity, and, and it wasn't, you know, this is many academics' point of view, even back then, um, objectivity is... is it, it's a, uh, this isn't my phrase, but... Um, it's a it's a business imperative that somehow morphed into an ethical imperative. The idea of 
objectivity. We give you all sides, you know, made for good business in the days when there were two or three newspapers and each newspaper wanted all the advertisers to feel comfortable. We won't, we won't piss anybody off. But especially at a time like this, when we have players on the public stage who clearly are lying, those lies need to be called out. Um, you know, one of my colleagues at the Tribune, Mark Jacob, was uh, recently uh, interviewed and, and talked about the time when he was at the Tribune. I believe this was after my time there. Um, and he was told not to use the word lie to refer to statements made by then President Trump when they clearly clearly were lies and and the result of not enough news organizations calling out lies when they are clearly lies when they are told by someone who's been told repeatedly what you're saying isn't true and been shown proof that that thing isn't true and yet they still say it that's dangerous journalism and and so I, I'm I'm I much prefer journalists who in the work of journalists who are open uh, about the conclusions that they've come to. I mean, example I've used for years is, okay, you have a, a city hall reporter who's covered city hall for years. And that city hall reporter over the course of time knows very well which aldermen are likely to tell the truth and which aldermen over the course of time have been shown to be dissemblers. Um, a reporter who does who presents a statement by one of those untrustworthy older people or older creatures, as Mike Royko Mike used to call them, um, and does not say, oh, and by the way, this alderman has a history of lying, is doing a disservice to that reporter's audience. Um, I, I don't know if you see that as, as biased or not, but I see that as truth-telling. I see that as context, valuable context, valuable expertise gathered by a reporter that that reporter should be free to share freely. And clearly, you know, that was not done enough over the last half decade, and I might argue it really hasn't been done enough over the course of many, many decades dating back to Watergate and before, because reporters rub the mind of, well, it's the, the right way to cover journalism is we have a liar over here and we have a truth teller over here. We'll just put the two quotes out there. Equal, equal time, our job's done. Mm -hmm. That is not good journalism. That is uh, not good for democracy. It, it hasn't been good for America. Yeah, and you think about um, you know academia because if somebody makes a statement, you have to write the source. You have to put the citation. So, for instance, if you say, "Okay, so and so said this," and then you do um, a footnote, and or you do a uh, citation number like one or whatever, and then you say, "See such and such," and then, but of course, you know, journalism's not. Um, we're not in academia, but that's usually what you do. And well, that's the joy of hyperlinking. Yeah. Um, you know, I. Uh, made a reference the other day to uh, Congresswoman Mary Miller. Um, and I referred to her, her to, uh, to her as Mary, parentheses, Hitler was right, close parentheses, Miller. And I hyperlinked Hitler was right to reporting on her history of praising Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, and you might, argue, I mean, some people might say, Meyerson, that's biased reporting. I consider that accurate context provided for my audience so that they know the most salient news about Mary Miller when I write about her. Yeah, in the early days of the internet, it was developed by people who were educated. So 
essentially was hyperlinks that were like academia because they would say, okay, you're rising to the top of the search result. This is before people gamed it. I don't know if you remember the beginning of the internet. The beginning of the internet was not uh, creepy like it is now and sleazy, but it was sort of like, (laughs) it's a sort of like, hey, look at this. Okay, this is cool because people were linking to it just like academia. It was nerdy. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I mean, I teach at Columbia and I tell the students um, what the beginning of the internet was like. And, you know, those early years, which is you're too young to remember the beginning of the Internet. The beginning of the Internet goes back to the, you know, the 50s and 60s. Okay, yeah, that's real early. I'm talking about the beginning of commercial, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Early 90s. But okay, so but the thing is, okay, so um, you said you also do a podcast. Yeah. You know, the nice thing about uh, what I do and, and I think about anyone who's creating content in the digital era is if if something is uh best communicated in audio it can be audio if it's best communicated as an image it can be an image if it's best communicated communicated as video it can be video so yes i've done a series of uh, of interviews um periodic not regular um and and you know we've cut back in the in the pandemic i've cut back in the pandemic but uh some of the shows i've been doing with with rivet uh last year we did a a series of uh i I call them jointly produced podcasts chicago media talks for rivet 360 and for chicago public square um you can experience those by going to podcasts.chicagopublicsquare.com um, interviews with people in Chicago media, very much like radio girl. You were, you were there first. Um, you know, we, we interviewed, um, I mean, in my mind today, because the R Kelly story is in the news, we interviewed Jim D Regattas, who is the, you know, the reporter who trailblazed coverage of, of, uh, one of the reporters who, you know, did the, the pioneering coverage of R Kelly's crimes. So uh, that's a series and we're, uh, we are relaunching it this summer. So it'd be a series of you know, maybe half a dozen uh, podcasts, uh, interviews with significant figures in Chicago media, co-hosted with with my friend Sheila Solomon, who I worked with at the Tribune, and whom we're honored to have on the team at uh, at Rivet too. Oh yeah, I saw her on the street a lot, like a, maybe a year over a year ago, and yeah, yeah. I Sheila, Sheila is the um, Sheila knows everybody in Chicago journalism and in national journalism, and and. Um, and it's just a wonderful resource. So we've been very lucky to have her on our team as as a as a uh, consultant and as a uh, talent scout, and uh, and now as a as a co-host of this podcast. Yeah, she and I remember talking to her when I was at Rivet, and she was so interesting and so gracious. And actually, she and I went to a lecture together. And um, it, she's so uh, she's one of those people that a lot of people should get to know if they don't know her already. So. Sheila Solomon. Yes, yeah. I agree. Well, since you've been around during many inter- iterations or whatever the word is of the media, what do you think about digital versus, I know you said earlier, um, yeah, there are more gatekeepers in, in uh, releasing content, but what do you think about the digital situation versus the earlier days when certain people could really do well and climb the career ladder, et cetera? Uh, you know, I used to say that, um, you know, the people who were paid to sit in corner offices and think great thoughts, uh, they were among the first to feel the, the sting of the, the contraction that traditional media have gone through. Yeah. But then you have these people calling themselves thought leaders. Have you noticed that? Like, what is a thought leader? I don't know. Uh, You know, I don't think you see too many of those in newsrooms now. Um, but you know, and the jobs that have endured are the people who are on the front lines doing the work. 
and and in you know sadly it's it's sad that um editors who are doing the work are again in many news organizations among those who have been cut loose as more reporters are working without a net so to speak without you know that person who can look at their work and read it watch it listen to it like they hate the reporter then the result is a you know rising number of typos etc you know, journalism isn't necessarily a way to get rich uh, these days. I mean, it never really was, you know, uh, adjusting for inflation, uh, starting salaries for the news business aren't much different now. Really? I got the impression that maybe I mean, I know the columnists make good money, some of them, um, but there aren't many columnists. Yeah, the columnists, again, were among those who were encouraged to leave uh, the Tribune, for instance. Well, you know, here's my first job. Let's uh, shall we do the calculations adjust for inflation? Uh, calculator. My first job in uh, 1977 out of college was, uh, hold on, I got paid $9,000 a year. Hmm. Let's see. Calculate that for 2022, $42,000 a year. Let's see. I know Um, know people don't make that much. Yeah. It's not out of the question. Um, And again, I don't want to, I don't want to defend it because clearly I don't think people are, are paid what they worth. And I think that's true across a whole host of industries, but it's also, not incredibly far from where many starting salaries are now. And that was, you know, for a a news director working six days a week uh, in Aurora at that point. Well, I guess it's because I met these people who will say they just live really comfortably and they raise a family. And I'm thinking, I don't know a lot of people who can do that now who are in journalism. It's just, unless you're one of the really few lucky people like at the New York Times or one of those major papers, Washington Post or something. Uh, No question. And then I see some people entering the business. I mean, I don't work in a newspaper, but they didn't have to go through these smaller um, outlets. Well, no, it does happen in newspapers too. Um, They didn't have to go through the smaller outlets to get where they are. So they're, they're graduating from Medill or some of them haven't even graduated yet. And they're already being offered Medill (laughs) or, or let's say DePaul or something. I've I've taught it. I've taught it Medill, but I went to Illinois. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a rivalry there among journalism programs. But the thing is, you know, some of these people, um, I heard about one person who was hired even before they graduated from college to a major outlet. And I don't know what's going on. Is it because what's going on actually? I, I, I you know, I don't know, Margaret. I'm, yeah. uh, you know, I, I would say the entire economy is going through. I mean, certainly the information economy is going through a major transition. You know, those organizations that once upon a time, you know, when I joined the Tribune in 1998, uh, a friend uh, who worked there said, oh, even when I was offered the job, oh, you should take it. It's like getting it's like working for the government, working for the Tribune because, you know, it's a job for life. Uh, well, this person actually is still working there, so it, it is a job for this person's life. Hi, Rick Kogan. But in the years uh, since then, you know, many people have found that, you know, it's not a job for life. It wasn't a job for life. As I mean, the media business is in transition. The, the The old established analog organizations, and you know, I include television news in this, broadcast news. I mean, the generations to come are 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 not watching sitting down sitting their butts down in front of the tv to watch the six o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news they might have it on in the background while they're getting ready for work but uh it's not the same business and and again people young people getting in cars are not tuning to am and fm they're listening to pandora or spotify or whatever apple music and and so you know there is a there's a new normal coming again i've, I've said this before but um 
there is a, a right size for media organizations in the digital world that is emerging. And it is smaller than the Chicago Tribune or Tribune Company used to be. And it is much, 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 much larger than what Chicago Public Square is. But the race is on to see who can get to that right size first. Is it going to be the big company shrinking? Is it going to be the small companies growing? Um, and you can look in Chicago and see this happening. I mean, once upon a time, the, the Trib, you know, dwarfed the Sun-Times um, in terms of circulation, in terms of audience. I don't know if that's true now or not, um, but especially with the Sun-Times joining forces with WBEZ, those, those um, organizations, I'm guessing, prove me wrong if you can, I'd love to know if I'm wrong, that they are much closer in, in terms of revenue and uh, audience than, than they used to be. Um, and who's to say which is going to last longer? Similarly, as I mentioned, you know, startup news organizations like Block Club, which you know began on a shoestring, I anecdotally believe is growing audience. Uh, certainly, they're hiring more people and expanding their beats. Yeah, isn't that similar? There aren't didn't those people come from DNA Info, which is really DNA Info. That's right, which was you know unceremoniously cut loose by a member of the Ricketts family because they unionized basically. That apparently seems to be the case. You can hear our interview with the founders of uh, one of the founders of Block Club uh, on uh, the Chicago Public Square podcast page. If you go to podcast.chicagopublicsquare.com, you can hear that. Um, Seamus Toomey uh, talking about the origins of Block Club and the demise of DNA Info. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.